the Silver Voices Project, which allowed for digitization and sharing of this archival audio, was made possible by a grant from the U.S. Institute of Museum and Library Services, grant number MA 30190681198119. You put all the highs in, don't you, in your record? Mm-hmm. Now that's at eight, not getting a flash here. You're getting the indication that yeah. it is recording yes. now. Well, there's no reason why, uh, if, it's, if it indicates there, it must be going on the tape, that's for sure. Are you watching your music? You were born and raised in San Francisco, Mr. Moore. Were you there at the time of the earthquake? Yes, I remember the earthquake and the events following it very well. I was, let's see, I was about 11 years old at the time of the quake. And subsequent to that, we, we were burned out, of course, and then rebuilt in another part of the city. And uh, I completed my schooling, what schooling I have had in San Francisco. Left high school in the second year in order to pursue a career in the motion picture industry, not realizing what I was trying to do, but I had been spurred into my, my interest in motion pictures. It was spurred by something that happened a year or two after the earthquake. A little theater on Market Street in San Francisco, one of the first one, first theaters to reopen after the fire. Uh, it was a combination of vaudeville house and presentation sort of a place. And during an intermission period, they'd run what to me was my first experience, a motion picture of a train passing by, possibly a one-minute movie. And being very young and eager and anxious to learn things, I tried to figure out what made the train go by on this flat wall. thought it was possibly a shadow graph effect of some sort or a sliding magic lantern slide and, or how it could be done, I have no idea, but I would determine then to find out. And I really attribute my first interest in motion pictures and my first desire to get into the industry from the time that I saw that railroad train go by, rushing over my head in a little vaudeville house in San Francisco. Then when you started to work, was your first job uh, directly in connection with the industry, or was there anything in between? Well, while I was still in school, in high school for about a year or two years after I had seen this film. My interest was so so great that I decided to try to uh, build some sort of a camera or a device to make. I, of course, in the meantime, had figured out how motion pictures were made, although I had nobody to tell me. There was nobody to tell in those days. But I figured out my own way, and I had uh, rummaged around and found this little... Uh, forerunner of the motion graph, motion graph projection machine, which was a call of that, uh, the optograph. A little barrel shuttered miniature almost projector that uh, used 35 millimeter film. And from this, I was able to construct while still in high school, in my second year of high school, construct a sort of a camera by enclosing this projector into a light proof box 
and uh, would load the film, which I succeeded in some devious ways. I don't know how I managed to get a hold of photographic motion picture film. I think it was Gewurz stock or something of that nature. And would thread this thing, thread this device in a dark room and then close the box up and take it outside and expose the film, if you please, through the projection lens. Ah. Had no photographic lenses of any kind. I used this projection lens and startlingly enough, was able to get an image that was sufficiently recognizable that I covered some of the local events, such as the turning over the first spade full of earth for the Panama Pacific International Exposition by our then President Howard Taft. Uh, succeeded in photographing him doing that and made a print using the, uh, developed a negative in the basement of my home on a sort of an improvised rack and made a print using the camera as a uh, printer and the film was shown the following day in the Orpheum Theater as a news event. So, and this was all photographed with this, with this uh, as I say, projection lens. So that was the beginnings and uh, as I say, I left school and attempted to, against the wishes of my parents, who wanted me to be a doctor, they wanted me to complete my education and become a doctor or physician. But I had made up my mind that I was going to find out how that train had run, and I was going to make other trains run maybe a little better than that one did. Did the little stint uh, with the knitting company come in between here? Oh, yes. This is when I first left school, of course. I was much against the desires of my parents, and they didn't want me to go into this silly business of making motion pictures. It was too much like the theater, and theater didn't have too high a reputation in those days, as you recall. So they insisted that I go to work. I wanted to spend my time experimenting and figuring out how to make movies. So they got me, I asked an advertisement in the newspaper. I had to go to work or go back to school, and it was for a place called the Acme Knitting Company that had a knitting mill down on Mission Street, and the job was a sort of a general fact totem and cleaner-upper of the factory. And I guess about 2 o'clock the first afternoon that I was working there, I had finished sweeping out this place, which was deluged with lint, and they started to teach me how to operate a knitting machine that was making knitted underwear. And not being too interested in my job, or maybe it was an accident, I don't know, but within... A very few minutes after I was entrusted with the operation of this machine, there was a roar and a bang, and the machine was busted, and I was fired. <laughs> so that was the only the only other job I've ever had that didn't pertain to photography was that one day in the Acme Knitting Company in San Francisco. Then you started making local views, and then pretty soon you got into trouble, didn't you? Well, yes. I had this camera. The, the, the time that I was using this homemade device, there was an existence, the Motion Picture Patents Company, who owned and controlled the patents that made it possible to make motion pictures because of the intermittency of the movement and the loop in the film. And they had a couple of detectives out scouring the countryside, particularly in this western area, which is the new motion picture center of Hollywood, Los Angeles. And uh, these detectives were trying to get evidence of equipment that was an infringement on the patents company's patents. And they had been operating here uh, with the uh, against the independent motion pictures, Imp, Lemley's outfit, and they were so uh, 
intrusives that the and, and were such a dangerous element against the independent motion picture production that the independent producers would have armed guards surrounding their places of operation to keep these patents company spies off of their premises so that they wouldn't get to see the inside of the cameras or to see that the that they were an infringement well at any rate these two men had heard about my activities in San Francisco which is my hometown of course and where all my activities, my early activities, were centered. And I apparently had made some impression on the industries to some extent because they came there for the purpose of getting evidence against my equipment and preventing me from, uh, from using it. So they represented themselves. Their names were Kelly and Smith. I remember them very well, these two detectives, Smith and Kelly. And they represented themselves to me as being a couple of men from the oil sections of the state down around Bakersfield, and they wanted to make a documentary film of some sort about the oil industry, and they wanted to engage me to do it for them because I had the equipment to do it with, etc., etc. I, in my youthful gullibility, embraced them into my confidence and showed them this camera, whereupon I was served with an injunction to restrain me from using it, and with a threatened suit that they would uh, possess it and says, repossess, take it away from me and all that sort of thing. Well, my family, who were never in too great a sympathy with this idea of the motion picture business, my dear old dad and mother, uh, fearing the possibilities of, of uh, involvements and litigations and all that sort of thing, advised me to turn the camera over to their attorneys, Miller and White, the attorneys for the patents company in San Francisco. And rather than give them this work of art of my creation, this wonderful camera that I had evolved out of my own imaginations, I pleaded with them to let me keep it if I would no longer use it as a camera, but we could uh, convert it back to a projection machine as it originally had been used. Yes. And they refused, so I destroyed it dropped it on the floor of the attorney's office, and that was the end of my camera. Have I uh, neglected to ask you about your work in the photographic studio? Does that... Well, that was subsequent to this. Uh, after losing that camera, I realized uh, my complete lack of knowledge of photography, although I had delved in the amateur <coughs> type of thing and with the little box brownie. I guess the little box brownie was the existence then, wasn't it? The, yes. Mm -hmm. I had done some, some work with that. I had some knowledge of photography, but uh, realizing my shortcoming, and by this time having become serious with my ideas of staying in the industry or be getting someplace in the motion picture industry, I realized that a knowledge of photography was an essential. At that time, it was an essential to being a good cameraman. Uh, well, we'll drop that there. Anyhow, <laughs> uh, I went to work for a uh, photographer who at that time was the outstanding portrait man in San Francisco, Otto Boyer, uh, recognizedly one of the greatest portrait men on the Pacific Coast, and worked with him for about a year and a half, started in as an office boy and general factotum with the mop and the vacuum cleaner, or carpet sweeper in those days. and. Uh, Gradually, I gained his confidence and some ability and knowledge from him, and he um, trusted me with 
increased responsibilities in printing and developing and that sort of thing, and I actually got my first uh, my first knowledge of real photography from, I think, one of the greatest photographers that ever lived, this Otto Boyer. Can you tell us something about developing the negatives and printing? The well, Otto worked, of course, he was a one-man show. He did his own, all of his own operating, and uh, he'd uh, come into the dark room at the end of the day and hand develop uh, what we call brush develop the negatives. They were all glass plates, seeds plates, and he didn't believe in enlarging his images in any way at all, so all of the prints were all contact prints, and we shot plates up to, I'm sure, 11 by 14, and I think even 16 by 20. I think so there were some plates uh, to, that, to that size. And they'd be developed individually in trays, not in tanks, but they'd be developed individually in trays and started in the very slow, the old pyro ABC formula, yes. and started in a very slow developer till the image would begin to appear, and then with trays of different strengths of developer and the water tap running constantly, these plates would be brush developed by dabbing bits of cotton into the different strengths of developer and locally locally uh, developing portions of the negative and then wrenching that developer off under the tap and back in the soup again. That avoided a great deal of the rubbing and a great deal of retouching and gave a nice vignetting appearance to the to the negatives. Mm -hmm. And he taught by, I eventually got to do this, to, to some of this developing for him. He would never entirely trust anybody to do it completely, although I would help him in the darkroom with this, and then eventually uh, from proof printing on the old printout proof paper I was doing uh, platinum printing, and uh, eventually the, the uh, carbon printing, and, uh, and all in all I got a background of experience from Mr. Boyer that was this proven and valuable to me in my career. Then there was a question of salary that caused you to leave. Finally. Oh yes, I started with Otto, Mr. Boyer if you please. At six dollars a week, and at the end of a uh, that was the janitor and office boy and bill collector and errand boy, and at the end of a year and a half, and would, uh, at which time I was doing a lot of his uh, backroom work, I had been raised to eight dollars, and I wanted an increase to twelve dollars, and he wouldn't give it to me, so I quit. <laughs> then we come to uh, general film. Yes, and I went to work in. Uh, I went to work in the. Uh, well, by this time, General Film preceded this. I had done. Uh, I had worked for the General Film Company and for, for the Mutual Exchanges. They were called. That was the Independent Exchanges, as a film inspector. I used to rewind the films when they'd come back from the theaters and inspect them for tears and gouges and patch them up and get them ready for re-exhibition, and through that. After my photographic experience with Boyer, I went back to Saul Lesser, who had been uh, with, I think, the Mutual. He was the independent exchange distributor. And uh, at that time, there was associated with Saul uh, a man who is now also gone, Efi Asher, who was quite an important factor in motion picture production a few years back. He was an associate with Eddie Small, Small Asher, and Rogers when Charlie Rogers they were in production and an agency work, and Efi was a friend of uh, Saul's and also a young chap of about Efi's age. It was a couple of years older than me, maybe, a boy by the name of Sid Grauman, whose father was the local house manager, the Empress Theater in San Francisco, which was the Sullivan Considine Circuit House. 
uh, were friends of, of uh, these boys, uh, E.P. Asher and, and uh, Sid Grauman, were friends of Anyhow, uh, I went back to, to Saul Lesser. I went back to Saul to, to try to get another job. And we conceived, uh, Saul conceived the idea through Asher and Grauman of setting up a little independent motion picture laboratory and producing a local newsreel, which was known as the Golden Gate News. So I fitted up, we rented a storeroom in San Francisco, and I fitted that up as a laboratory. And uh, I had a camera. This was subsequent to the patents company. Incidentally, the patents company had been finished, so there was no change, uh, no danger of any infringement of any kind. I'm out of continuity now, but it doesn't That's matter at any rate. So uh, we produced, Efi and Sid produced, and I made this Golden Gate newsreel, which was released every week throughout the Pacific Coast. So we made uh, our release date was on Saturday. And it was a sort of a one-man band. I would photograph the thing. I'd go out and cover these news events all over the San Francisco area with this camera, come in and develop the negative and make the print. And then I had a little printing press. I'd set up the printing press, set up the titles, and photograph the titles, and assemble and cut the negative, put it together. And then I had an old Williamson printer with a hand light shift that you uh, didn't have a, an automatic light change, but by shifting the distance of the light from the aperture by means of two strings that you'd pull back and forth, you'd change your, your light density for printing. And I think we made something like 20 or 25 prints, which I'd run off every Friday night. I'd run these prints through, print them and develop them and put the darn things together and then ship them out on Saturday for their Saturday release all over the state. This is the Golden Gate Weekly. Mm -hmm. And during this period, incidentally, this is a digression, but it might be interesting, uh, the San Francisco Exposition was coming to San Francisco. The uh, Panama Pacific International Exposition was about to open in 1915. This must have been in about 1913, I guess. Yes, excuse me just a moment, uh, Hal. That's where the California Motion Picture Company comes that, in. That followed. Is it not? No, the California Motion Picture Company, I think, preceded this. It doesn't really matter. No. Okay, but, I didn't mean uh, to interrupt you. So quite all right, but the, uh, the, uh, let me finish this thought on mm -hmm. the lesser thing. Because uh, to clean up the, some of the immoralities that then existed in San Francisco, they decided to close up this old Barbary Coast. And the surface, it was closed up. The houses of assignation were, were emptied, and the, actually that sort of thing stopped. And the, the uh, saloons and dance halls on Pacific Street, which was the heart of the old Barbary Coast, were more or less cleaned up. But there had been a day designated, which was to be the last day of the Barbary Coast. And that was to be a Saturday night. And on the, the, that Saturday night was the last night of the Barbary Coast, and they were going to have a, an all-out festival, a last night of excitement and immorality and hell-raising. <laughs> and then from then on, no more Barbary Coast. So Sid, this was Sid's idea, or Efe's, I don't know, but they thought it would make a great documentary film to get a film and call it The Last Night of the Barbary Coast. So we... you have a print of that? Oh, in the, no, well, you should, you I just know of it. Get a print of it, <laughs> because you'll find it's a very startling film. Does it exist? I, it exists. I'm sure it does. Uh, I went down to the coast and photographed the uh, all of these little funny streets where all these 
houses of ill fame were standing and uh, on Pacific Street where the dance halls were and on this last night of the Barbary Coast I had a couple of converted arc lights which are the same ones that you saw in this other picture the thing that I did in Berkeley I'll we'll touch yeah. back on this All right. uh, I had these two arc lights on wooden standards that I set up on the street and used those for a, for a source of light on Pacific Street in front of the old Midway and the Thalia and the Hippodrome and places like that and photograph the street activities and the Salvation Army gals going in and out and the sailors and the soldiers and the cops and the drunks and even into the inside of some of these places. Well, I made, uh, uh, to make a long story short, we made a two-reel documentation called The Last Night of the Barbary Coast and to my last knowledge, I, I kept from then on, my activity was composed entirely of making prints of this film for distribution. It was state-righted. And I know that I personally made something over 300 prints off of this negative that were sold all over the United States. It was a very sensational film that showed nothing at all. Uh, this California motion picture thing that you speak of was an interval prior to my association with Lesser on this, uh, on this little laboratory thing. Uh, the Alexander Bifus had uh, built the studio in San Rafael, a little outdoor stage studio. I remember the cameraman's name was Lou Hutt, Lewis Hutt. And they did some pictures with uh, House Peters and uh, I think Beatrice Michelina and people like that. They, they made some very important pictures. And I was, I went up at where I worked for them. I finished a couple of, uh, I, I think I did some work on the, uh, one of the, oh, I forget the name of the thing, one of the, a House Peters thing, a Western thing. Little camera work on that and did some laboratory work and some editing. And from there I went over to Fairfax where a man by the name of James Keene had the Keenograph company that made a picture called Money that was released through the World Film Corporation. And I did some photography and some uh, editing and uh, laboratory work on that. And that was when, after that, I made my first trip to Hollywood and was unsuccessful in getting employment and went back to San Francisco and promoted this uh, Itala America films. That's, an, that's a rather interesting story, I mm -hmm. think, to this respect that uh, if you will recall, or the history will show, your archives will show that prior to World War One, uh, our most interesting film and our best made film from a technical point of view were the films, the imports from Italy and from France, Melee's Brothers and, and uh, Itala films and a few outfits like that and with the advent of uh, World War One, before our participation in it of course when the first broke out uh, all motion picture production ceased in Europe in favor of the war activity with the result that our source of supply of, of the better films, the better European films was completely cut off. So in my ambitions to do things in the motion picture industry, I conceived the idea of, of supplanting the source of supply with a locally made foreign type of production. And being a San Francisco boy and having a, a 
tremendous uh, population of Italians in San Francisco, I thought it would be a great opportunity to exploit the Italian colony and have them finance a production company that could make pictures in the style of the Italian motion picture. I remember that one of the last films that I saw that came out of Italy prior to, the, to World War I was a picture called Cabiria, which made a tremendous impression on me because of the camera work and the technical effects and the fact that I saw for the first time, to my knowledge at least, a camera, a motion picture camera, that was not static, that was not set still, that moved. It was apparently on some kind of a crane or an arm or some kind of a motivating piece of equipment that made it move through these tremendous sets. At any rate, uh, I conceived this idea of promoting this company for the purpose of making pictures in the European style and succeeded in, in uh, raising the money on, uh, amongst the North Beach colony and built this little studio <coughs> pardon me, in Berkeley, California. Found an empty lot on which to the barn and we used the barn for a scene loft and I built the stage which was half covered over and half in sunlight. And I found a piece of literary material that I didn't bother to purchase motion picture rights for because I didn't think that that sort of thing was necessary as long as I gave them credit as the story having been conceived by the author. A picture called Pan's Mountain. It was a book written by Amelia Reeves and I converted this into a scenario. I wrote the scenario myself after building the studio and had some of the Italian stockholders who were carpenters and painters work with me building the scenery and painting the scenery and I think we raised something like $10,000 altogether. And one of our principal stockholders was a gentleman who, I don't mean this in a derogatory way at all to make this comparison, but he looked as though it could have been Edward G. Robinson playing Little Caesar. He was that type of man in appearance, but a very nice gentleman, although he had tremendous real estate holdings in what was on the old Barbary Coast. He owned a lot of these dance halls and, and former houses and uh, he ran a, uh, he had a restaurant that was a very famous restaurant called Caesars. Uh, his name was Johnny D. Marie. I can mention his name because I have nothing to say about Johnny but the best. And Johnny put up most of the money in this, in this venture. So we made this picture. I was the producer, built the studio, promoter, director, author, cameraman, and when we'd finish our day's shooting, I had this little laboratory that had belonged to a, f a man I had formerly worked for, who I'll come back to, and at night I developed a negative in this, uh, in this little laboratory, and in the morning I'd get up before dawn and run off a quick print on the thing and leave that on the drums to dry while we were out shooting during the day and made this thing, this thing called Pan's Mountain, which I subsequently edited and took back to New York and was in the middle of negotiations of uh, trying to sell it to the William J. Brady organization, the New Greater New York Film Exchanges, which was their state rights group. And uh, during these negotiations, which of course took some time because the practice then of the purchaser of film was as it is now to get you in a, in a condition of desperation so that they can get it cheaply, and during these negotiations, the uh, uh, the stockholders 
Uh, I had a very lucrative contract with him. If I succeeded in selling this picture, I was to get a, an enormous amount of money and a big ownership in the organization. I was to have, I think, 10% of the stock, and I was to get $75 a week for a period of one year. This is, this is the truth by terms of a contract if I succeeded in selling the picture. Well, Johnny and the other stockholders figured that that was too much money to pay anybody for doing anything, and they had an opportunity of putting the company through bankruptcy proceedings, which happened, and I was frozen out. My contract was broken. Whether the film was ever sold or not, I, I don't know. I know it was subsequently turned over to a local San Francisco firm by the name of uh, Ray Doohim. Doohim, Ray Doohim who uh, was supposed to finish the picture and, and dispose of it and, and uh, get something out of it, whether I, I lost all track of it because I subsequently came down to Hollywood. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what happened after that. But uh, I, I mentioned this laboratory, this Arthur Rice thing. Uh, at some time during these early days of experience, I had uh, gone to work for a man who was a portrait photographer in Berkeley by the name of Arthur Rice. And he had an associate with him uh, whose family were the, the banking family of uh, uh, in Fresno. Alfred Einstein was the boy's name. And uh, Alfred and Arthur had uh, gone into the motion picture business. I don't know just exactly how, how, how to explain that, except that they had built this laboratory and they had a, a camera that, that got around the patents company because of the fact that it had no loop. It was the old Gaumont beta type of camera. And they had avoided the patents company, and I worked for them for a while, photographing. I was using this Gaumont camera, and uh, I remember we made a picture. Uh, of course, in those days, everything was silent film. We made a picture with the deaf and dumb children of, a, of a, an institute in Berkeley that was uh, caring for the deaf and dumb children and educating them, and we used them in pantomime and did a little fairy tale thing in which there were several double exposures involved in a lot of trick photography, all mm -hmm. made with this beater-type Gaumont camera and done very successfully. Whatever became of the flat film, I don't know. But I gained great experience from Arthur and made a very nice association with him. Uh, for one thing, I was able to use his deserted laboratories to... Uh, process the film of the Italo-America thing that I did, the Spans Mountain. And then when that folded and I was out of a job again, my family was threatening to send me back to the Acme Knitting Company or something <laughs> similar. <laughs> Arthur, who had subsequently gone to work for Universal as a director, uh, sent for me to come down there and I, got, I went to work for Universal in the winter of 1915 and 16 at what is now Universal City and was then the newly opened Universal City as a film cutter, an editor. I worked there for, oh, I guess a couple of years as a, as a film cutter, and, uh, or a year at least. And during that period, they were, they were doing the, the, the big pictures with the bluebirds. There were their A features, what we would now call the A features, the super colossals, and the red feathers were their, what we would now call the B pictures of the quickies, and of course their preponderance of production was on the one and two real field and, of course, all silent film. And uh, in the editorial department, because of my association with Arthur and his sort of sponsoring me, I don't know whether Arthur is still living or not, but he was a very wonderful man to me. 
he uh, knew I'd had some experience in direction and, and in photographing, and through his, as I say, sponsorship, I was given the opportunity of doing other things there beyond just editing film. And I did a few little trick photographic things, one involving a mirror reflection thing for E.I. DuPont. And uh, uh, Ruth Stonehouse was a little lady who was one of their stars. Yeah. And they wanted to make a directress out of Ruth. <coughs> so being an editor, I was assigned to edit her film to go out on the set and co-direct with her. And George Bronson Howard, the author, was uh, to direct a series of his own stories, detective stories, I forget what this would resemble to some extent today's television series. Uh, I've forgotten the name of the character, but anyhow, I, I co-directed with George Bronson Howard on a few of those things and edited this film. So I had a rather extensive education at Universal. And then after getting fired from Universal... Excuse me, Hal, would you tell about that mirror shot? Well, the mirror shot involves uh, uh, some personalities, and I, I, I'll tell the experience, but I won't mention any names, if that's all right, because I don't want to involve people. But this DuPont, E.I. DuPont, was a German director. He had done a thing called Variety, where people swung on swings and things, a uh, thing in Germany, remember? Yes, it? We quite a sensational yes, thing, an acrobatic thing. And he came over here to make pictures for Universal. And... Uh, he was a man, obviously, from the variety picture, you would know, would be, would like trick camera effects and all that sort of thing. He was doing a picture with Mary Philbin and, uh... Norman Carey. Norman Carey, that's right. And there was a scene in it. Uh, Carey had apparently, I forget the context of the story, but enough to say that the scene involved a retrospect thing in Carey's mind in which he's dancing with somebody in this lavish ballroom back here at home. And in his mind's eye, he goes back to a similar situation where he was in a little French farmhouse dancing with a girl that he really loved. And uh, in this ballroom, this modern ballroom in which he is now dancing, there's a huge mirror on the wall. And in this mirror, he sees the reflection of all the people in the ballroom dancing with, at the same time as he is, dancing with this girl I forget who the girl was at that moment. Mary Philbin was the one in the French farmhouse. I mm -hmm. remember that. And the reflection in the mirror transposed itself into the French farmhouse with the little girl in his arms dancing in the same position he's dancing in on the, in the ballroom floor, and all the ballroom floor dancers disappear. Well, and with today's methods of making pictures, I mean by our moving mats and our... our uh, optical printing and all that sort of thing and the the, the blue background the processes and uh, would be a very simple thing to do but in those days where we did everything in the camera there was no such thing as, as uh, double optical optical printing or anything of that nature they did some double printing but there was and I think the moving mat a man by the name of Williams had just created the moving mat thing but there was a terrific fee connected with it and it wasn't too satisfactory but we used to do all of our trick work on the camera. Well, they had a special trick department at Universal, and they had, uh, uh, old Carl Lemley had recently bought a process from Germany that used mirrors called the Schiftheim process. Mm -hmm. And uh, they had, Lemley owned that, but they had been unable as yet to use it because nobody knew, to, knew how to use the thing. Yet Schiftheim was there, and he didn't know how to use it either, I don't think, because they never did anything with it. 
It was a uh, process whereby they would shoot into a mirror and cut holes through the silver. The mirror would reflect one area, and through the hole in the mirror, they would have a background that would be superimposed within the within the image of one frame. It was a single exposure process. Well, anyhow, none of these processes would seem to apply themselves to the shot that DuPont wanted. And DuPont, knowing that I had done some trick photography and had some ideas of my own, asked me if I would do the shot for him. It seems that nobody could do it for him. Nobody knew how to, how to do the thing, or they at least professed that they didn't know how to do it. So I told DuPont that I wouldn't do it because there was a department there for that purpose, but I'd be glad to talk to them and explain how I thought it could be done, which I did, and uh, I was antagonized by their response to the point where I said, all right, I'll do it. I'll make the shot for you. DuPont. In other words, the people that were supposed to do the shot, supposed to do those things, said that my idea was no good and couldn't work and so on. So anyhow, I did the shot, and we did it by a simple split screen. A very simple exposure. It sounds as though I'm boasting about my abilities, but it's not, that's not true. The, the fact is that I found in all application to photographic problems that by going to the simplest method, it was always the best answer. And in this case, by going back to the old simple method of an ordinary split screen with a fine, sharp, matching line and a dividing line over which people could not pass but would seem to pass by coming in contact with each other, it worked out very well. And uh, needless to say, I didn't make very many friends by doing it, excepting DuPont, who to this day when I see him, which has been as recent as a year ago, still remembers that shot. Now, I have two notations here, one about uh, Amina film and another about uh, two Hell Roach comedies of Harold Lloyd. Would you tell us about this? Yes, uh, I'll the Lloyd experience was an interesting one because it was after I got through at Universal and just before we became involved in World War I, uh, I had had some little experience directing by this time and I wanted to, I needed a job very badly and I met a man by the name of Dwight Whiting, who was, <coughs> who was in association with Hal Roach, owned and operated the Rollin Film Company, who were making one and two real comedies with Toto the Clown and with Harold Lloyd and B.B. Daniels, and releasing them, I think, through Path A at that time. So uh, I met Dwight Whiting, and he seemed to be impressed with me and with the fact that I had not yet gone in the Army, and we were, we were now, war had been declared, the United States was in the war, but I apparently had been given exemption because of uh, certain dependencies, and he thought I might be a valuable man to them, and he gave me a chance to direct for him. So I did direct in collaboration with uh, a chap who was Harold's chauffeur at that time, and I don't say this in any derogation at all, they was rather in... Uh, because of their lack of confidence in my abilities, they wanted to put somebody with me to help keep me straight. And this Gil, Gil Pratt was his name. He subsequently became a rather famous director. I think that he is now dead. But he was Harold's chauffeur at that time. Harold had this blue Chandler Phaeton, and he and B.B. used to sit in the back seat going on locations while Gil would drive them. And uh, Gil wanted to be a director, wanted to do something in the industry. So this was Gil's opportunity as well as mine to direct Harold Lloyd. So Gil co-directed with me, and we made a little thing called the Big Idea. 
uh, one reeler with Harold and Beebe and the Rollins Stock Company that was the first comedy to play on the uh, Criterion Theater was the brand new theater that opened down downtown Los Angeles, I think on Grand Avenue. Uh, and it, there was a big feature picture that opened the thing, and my comedy was the comedy that ran with it. Gil Pratt and I had co-directed it. And then I subsequently made another one, that I, another one with Harold Lloyd, which I can't now recall the title of. But it was also a one-reel comedy, and this was also an association with Gil Pratt. And then I was taken into the Army, and there was that interval of a couple of years in France. Before you leave the big idea, I wish you'd tell the plot of it. I think it's a pretty original idea. Well, it's, in those days, the Lloyd comedies were usually made off of the cuff. We had Harold's Blue Chandler, in which would sit Harold and B.B. and Gil and myself, and then we had a little yellow bus that was like a miniature of the present-day school buses. And this little bus contained the Rollins Stock Company. And that stock company was uh, Snub Pollard and, uh, oh, the old Dutch, what's his name? There was, there, anywhere, there was the regular stock company was in all the Harold Lloyd comedies. And that little bus would follow this blue chandler around town. And as we drive, we discuss. We had a kind of a format of an idea as to how the picture would be made. But actually, it was made. The, those comedies were made of the in, uh, by the inspiration of the moment. Mm -hmm. And we'd get an idea. We'd see a park, or we'd see a bench, or we'd see a drugstore, or a saloon with a post in the center of the door, and it was a springboard for for a gag. So at any rate, this the, the comedies were written in that way. So I had gone. I'd given Whiting this idea that I had for an, for a for a format for a roach comedy, which appealed to him. And this was basically the idea. That was BB's father, who was this old Dutchman. I wish I could remember his name. Remember the stock company. BB's father ran the second-hand furniture store, and business was very bad. And he was in rather desperate straits. And Harold, who was BB's sweetheart currently through all the Lloyd comedies, that was Harold and Beebe were sweethearts, uh, conceived this idea of helping the old man out financially by creating a uh, mythical situation in which they typewrote a lot of got telegraph blanks and typewrote this telegram on them addressed to some Joe Dokes or something of some indeterminate address stating that in a certain second-hand furniture store there was a, an antique piece marked with a cross mark in which was concealed something of great value, some sort of a treasure or something of that nature. And, and they uh, went around, Harold went around town distributing these telegrams inadvertently dropping them in different places around the city for people to pick up. And in the meantime, they had gone to their to B.B.'s father's furniture store and marked every piece of furniture in the place with a big white <laughs> cross mark so, of course, the, uh, the obvious result was that every stick of furniture in the store was sold out within a couple of hours, and the old man was happy, and, of course, the innumerable gags, like the drunk dropping the pocketbook and the snub trying to get it to get money. He already had the telegram, but he needed enough money to buy the piece of furniture, and, and the woman that sat down on the chair with the mark cross mark marked on it. When she stood up, she had the X mark on the <laughs> obvious place, and somebody grabbed her and ran out with her. And then came the war. Hmm? Then came the war, yes. And I, I was uh, drafted into the uh, infantry and served in France with the uh, 362nd Infantry, 91st Division, 
until a month or so before the armistice, and at which time I was transferred into the photographic section of the Signal Corps, 66th Service Company of the Signal Corps. And there I was associated with many people, George Marshall, Dick uh, Wallace, I mean a lot of very wonderful people, Alan Crossland, who I subsequently worked with, a very, very good director, Gordon Hollingshead, many, 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 many men who were big names in the picture industry subsequently. And then from there I came back to, came back very late after the armistice. I was over in Paris almost a year after the armistice was signed. By the time I got back, the first flush of heroism was lost and jobs were scarce. So I went to work for a firm that I had worked for prior to this. Uh, that the time that I worked for them before in San Francisco, they were known as Miles Brothers. They were the real pioneer motion picture firm in San Francisco. And they had documented a oh, lot of film in, in, in and around the events in San Francisco. They, were, they photographed many of the fights, the prize fights in Daly City and in Reno, the world-famous fights, world championship fights. And they had also documented, I think, the only motion pictures that were made of the San Francisco earthquake and fire. And they had, they had considerable negative in their vaults and in their files and considerable positive of the of the earthquake and the fire that showed uh, showed the city in flames, showed the ruins, that showed some of the buildings being toppled over as a safety precaution that were still standing hazardously, you know. And uh, their cameraman, I remember at that time, was a man by the name of Cerrone, Jim Cerrone. He was a rather swarthy, heavy-set, short Italian fellow who was quite a cameraman, I guess, in his day. And his mode of transportation in those early days was he had a four-wheeled rig, a lightweight buggy, and a fast horse. And he'd throw his camera into the back of this buggy and jump into it with a... This horse would go galloping down the street like a fire engine to whatever events would take place, and Jim would cover them with his camera. It was kind of a newsreel thing in a way, although it was not for newsreels. It was San Francisco. He was telling the... the uh, the history and stories of San Francisco. Well, this Miles Brothers firm eventually dissolved down to the last living member that I knew of was Earl Miles, also a very fine gentleman. And working for Earl at that time was a chap who was one of our more famous ca cameramen in Hollywood, Roy Klafke. Roy was a laboratory man for Earl. And I went to work after coming back from the war. Earl gave me a job, and I shot some documentary and advertising films for them in San Francisco. And after that, I got a job with an outfit in Portland, Oregon, called the Lifeograph. Was that it? Lifeograph. The Lifeograph. Mm -hmm. And we did two pictures. Two pictures were made there, which I partially did. I didn't photograph them in their entirety. I photographed part of them, did the editing on them, uh, which were the first, actually the first starring vehicles for Gene Hershalt. I think Gene had had some experience in film prior to that, but he was a leading man in these films. Uh, I remember a man by the name of Mc, McMoneys was the man at the head of the company, and we had for a studio an old... Uh, uh, foundry that had been a stove works where they had manufactured stoves and that had been converted into a studio and we used that uh, used that property as a studio and this McMoney's was the uh, 
had the biscuit factory in Portland. He was the, like the National Biscuit Company is, he manufactured crackers, soda crackers and that sort of thing. And he was the financier, the financial head of this, of this outfit. What the disposition was of the films that we made or what the titles were, <coughs> I don't at the moment recall. Yes, there's a still of that in this scrapbook here. And while I'm speaking of the scrapbook, I wonder if you'd document just this one from 1914 and the uh, well, this and pick up your moving camera reference on that. Oh, yes, yes. I, I remember speaking about the Kabiria thing, and, and uh, I, I did drop out the one thing that I did want to point out. I, I really believe, I may be mistaken, and possibly I'm opening up a Pandora's box of criticism and making this claim. But I believe that I am the first person that ever moved a camera in an American film, in an American-made film. And this photograph that you refer to is a photograph of the stage, the covered portion of the stage of the Italo-America Film Studios in Berkeley, in which I have a combination set built that runs from a living room through a hallway into a bedroom with a broken wall effect to cross over. And I've constructed a railroad track sort of a contrivance with two by sixes laid on edge, tied together with scaffolding that resembles a railroad ties, and on the surface is a little piece of strap iron, and there's a platform with small diminutive car wheels, flanged car wheels, that rolls on this track. And on that platform is mounted the Path A camera on a tripod, and that camera traveled across the set and dollied with the actors through various portions of the action. And this was emulated, as I said, I made an early reference to Kabiria. I was emulating the Italian technique and making the camera move as they had done in Kabiria, mm -hmm. and which, as I had said before, to my knowledge, was the first time I had ever seen a camera move. And again, I think that my imitating them was the first time it had been done in an American film. Did you mention the street lights? And uh, the oh, yes, the arc lights on the covered portion of the stage. The stage was built with a roof over half of it. I think the stage was about 60 feet long by about 30 feet wide. And in the early days of the film, uh, we, of course, used the diffusion cloths over the outdoor stages to kill the direct sunlight. Mm -hmm. But uh, having rather inclement weather conditions around San Francisco, I had the foresight to cover at least a portion of the stage so it would be out of the rain when it did rain. And in order to get illumination in there, I'd reflect with oilcloth reflectors from out in the sunlit area in onto the sets, and to supplement them in inclement weather, I had taken two arc lights that had been originally the automatic street arcs that hung over street corners, and had devised them onto wooden standards and put reflectors behind them, and those were my sources of light, these two arc lights. And these were the same arc lights, incidentally, that I had used on photographing the uh, last night of the Barbary Coast thing for uh, for Saul Lesser. They were a hangover from that. Mm -hmm. Now I'll take you back to the period in uh, Portland there and uh, what happened in between uh, the lithograph engagement and 1921 when you were making the unfoldment? Well, let's see. That was in about 19... 19 or 20, wasn't it? 1920 yeah. was mm -hmm. the lithograph. Uh, well, I got buried while I was in Portland. And I remember uh, that at that time the, the foreign car craze was uh, interpreted in those days by stripped-down Fords. It had no fenders or nothing but just a chassis and a couple of bucket seats. And I remember my wife and I drove to Los Angeles after that. 
And uh, I came to Los Angeles, and let's see, where did I go to work on my arrival here from Portland? I think I went back to my first love, back to Universal. Mm-hmm. If I'm not mistaken. Or I did, no, I did a series of things around Poverty Row at the old Grand Asher Studios. And I think for me, Leo Maloney followed that, didn't he? Was not the Leo, Leo Maloney period coming there after the World War One? I? I don't show the one and two reels. All I show is a feature film from 1926. Well, then I had done. I, I worked for Leo Maloney. Uh, did a whole series of one and two reel westerns for him, and then we went into the feature things. Also, uh, I did the first Richard Talmadge picture. Watch him step was that? Uh, that was it. Yes. With Richard Talmadge, watch him, watch, uh, watch him step, or something of that nature. Uh, uh, Richard was his name was actually Sylvester Mazzetti. He was the one of a of a, an acrobatic family, one member of an acrobatic family. And the producer of the of the pictures uh, conceived the idea of giving him a name, Talmadge, I suppose, after the Talmadge sisters or something of that name, called him Richard Talmadge. He was a damn darn good stuntman. He used to do all the stunts for Doug Fairbanks, the ones that Doug wouldn't do himself. That is Doug Senior. Mm -hmm. And uh, this this uh, producer got the idea of making a series of. Uh, stunt pictures with Dick Talmadge, with his character Dick Talmadge, and I photographed the first one of those and one or two others with that, with that family. Uh, also, uh, I did a thing with uh, George Larkin. Saved by Radio. Saved by Radio, that's right, uh, which was also a stunt picture for an independent outfit on Beechwood Drive. Of course, this has all uh, subsequently become the Columbia Studios. Mm -hmm. But there were many little independent outfits working in there. Uh, during that time also, I did a couple of pictures with a chap by the name of Roy William Neal. He was known as the rocking chair director, because he always sat on a rocking chair and directed his scenes. Would rock back and forth, I remember. He, on uh, one occasion, he was sitting on top of a six-foot parallel rocking in this chair, kept creeping nearer and nearer the edge. Fortunately, we got him before he rocked off. But the, I think the most interesting factor uh, in connection with Roy William Neal is the fact that a man who subsequently became one of our most distinguished, although short-lived, distinguishment directors uh, was Roy's assistant at the time, Joseph von Sternberg. Joe was the assistant director with Roy, and Joe and I stuck up a pretty good friendship at the time, but I never was associated with Joe subsequent to that. There was an interesting story in connection with Saved by Radio you were telling me about. Oh, yes. Uh, this was a George Larkin stunt picture, and uh, the uh, I think it was George Larkin and Saved yeah. by Radio. Uh, at any rate, we had this heroic thing where he uh, gets onto the seaplane to chase the villains who are in a speedboat down in the ocean, and these villains have come from a cave that was in the face of the Point Furman Cliffs. So there was no process, of course, in those days, and if there had been, we wouldn't have used it because it would have been too expensive on the type of pictures we were making. So we got this old DC-4 flying boat a biplane with a flying boat on it, and uh, I set up the camera with a twin, two Liberty engines on this thing, one out on each wing, and I wanted to get a shot of, of this character, 
as I say, I believe it was George Larkin, getting up out of the cockpit, climbing across the fuselage, going out to the wingtip, and as the pilot brought the boat, the flying boat down over the speedboat, George was to leap off of the wingtip onto the uh, onto the speedboat and dispose of the villains in the usual heroic manner. <laughs> so the only place I could set the camera was out on the wing, and we had no special mounting apparatus for cameras, so we put a board on the back of the wing, which is right behind this one Liberty engine, so that I had a photograph through the, through the propeller in order to photograph George in the front observer's cockpit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We tied the camera down onto the swing, and I stood on this board with my back to the, to the wire struts and hand-cranked this scene. We had no motors in those days either and hand-cranked the scene of George coming up out of the cockpit and panned him out across the, across the fuselage and onto the wing and sustained on him on the wing. We saw our approach, with George standing in the foreground, we saw our approach to the speedboat, and as we hovered over, he jumped off, and I panned back onto the speedboat as we went off of it. And the, uh, there was one rather amusing thing that happened. It was my first experience in photographing from uh, an airplane of that size, although I had done some aerial observation work before with photography, not during the war, this was in Bakersfield. At any rate, uh, the one amusing thing that happened in this particular incident was that uh, while we were flying, I had this fear of something hitting this propeller, which was only about five feet in front of me that I was photographing through. I was in the full blast of this prop. And as we were flying across the ocean, I saw this pelican and we were going to fly right smack into it, and we did, and it came within four or five feet of my face and disappeared. The propeller hit it, and the thing was disintegrated, and thank God the propeller wasn't shattered, so there was no accident of any kind. But it was quite a shock to me when it happened. You mentioned cranking, Hal. Would you tell about cranking speed in that day? Well, of course, the standard speed was, uh, today we'd refer to it as 60 feet a minute. It was 16 frames a second or one foot, one foot of film a second as against mm -hmm. the 24 frames or a foot and a half a second of today for sound speed. Although we did vary that speed uh, to suit the conditions. I mean, if we were doing a comedy, we would slow down the speed of the film in order to speed up the action and projection. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, a stunt of somebody leaping off of a cliff or doing a high jump of some kind. We very often speed up the film so as to slow them down, give a little slow motion effect as they would fall, which would sustain okay. the fall. Mm -hmm. Now, in this period, you made um, a film called A Woman Who Sinned in 1924, and a film um, with Ralph Entz directing called Playing With Souls in 1925. Well, and you have a still from each of these in your scrapbook. Would you comment about this one here and also about this still over here? All right, I'll be happy to. Well, this one still that you point out is from The Woman Who Sinned. It was a picture starring Mae Bush, who was one of our very famous silent film stars. We had borrowed her from, from uh, MGM. She was under contract to MGM. This was a picture that was directed by Finus Fox, who was a brother of Edwin Carew. Edwin Carew was the man who directed the Dolores Del Rio pictures with such high success. And Finus was an author, basically, but a very nice gentleman and a, and a pretty good director. And we did this, this sort of a, a Amy Semple McPherson type of thing. And the still that I'm looking at is a is a huge gathering of people before some kind of a of a uh, mission of some sort. There's signs all over the wall, get right with God, etc. But it's a rather huge set, and I see I have two sun arcs 
which was quite a quite a thing to use in those days. Those were the days of arc lights, of course, and the old so-called orthochromatic film. Uh, I, whatever became of the picture, I don't know. I don't know if it was ever released or not. But it wasn't too bad a picture. Now the other still has to do with uh, with the Thomas Ince productions, and it's uh, it has to do with a picture that starred Bell Bennett and uh, playing with souls. Playing with souls. Yeah. Yes, it was directed by Ralph Ince. And incidentally, there's one little uh, side story. This I was doing this picture when Tom Ince died, mm -hmm. and uh, as you know, with his death. That studio ceased to be a studio. There was really a one-man organization. Ralph was a very splendid fellow and a pretty good director. And this one still that you're referring to has to do with a set. In those days, again, I point out the fact that we didn't have optical printing or any of the easier ways of doing things. And this is a rather lavish hallway setting, a spectacular sort of a thing for its time. And over it is this huge Gothic ceiling with tremendous brackets off the wall, but this, this, this ceiling and the wall brackets is all in miniature, which was a suspended miniature under which the camera shot, and by proper alignment the miniature became a part of the set. Uh, that meant that we had to line up our... And lining up a miniature of this sort, it meant that the the work, because of a matter of economy, had to be done before the company was ready to start shooting. And it involved many hours of painstaking readjustments, as well as running hand tests to be sure that the that the uh, exposure balanced correctly, that physically the miniature is set in relation to the walls as it should set. And when a set of this sort was to be shot in those days, they were not done by special crews, but the cameraman himself, or in this case, I myself had to go in, oh, at 3.30 or 4 o'clock in the morning and have this set prepared so that by the time the director and the actors came in at 9 o'clock, it was properly aligned so we could shoot. Mm -hmm. So, of course, those were the days of unrestricted hours and unrestricted labor on the part of the cameraman and in doing... Uh, doing pictures of this sort, we very often worked, oh, without respite of any kind, seven days a week, maybe a few hours sleep snatched on the set. Mm -hmm. Now, Hal, when you went to Metro in uh, 1925... Not Metro. Oh, I beg your pardon, was it Goldwyn? Mm -hmm. Making the Monster? Oh, that was, uh, that was an independent company, uh... Uh, was made, uh, we made it at the old Buster Keaton Studios, the monster, a Lon Chaney picture directed by Roland West. Mm -hmm. uh, we, uh, I guess you have that confused with, uh, Metro released the picture. That's it, that's it. And uh, Buster, uh, Buster Keaton's uh, studios were a portion of the Metro uh, facilities, and we made the picture at that studio. That mm -hmm. was uh, the only connection we had with Metro. But that was quite an experience because it was involved a great many physical oh, difficulties and also a great deal of trick effects that were novel in their day. For example, I remember one, the story as I remember it had to do with this insane doctor who would uh, had some theory about reincarnating the personalities of 
some people into the personalities of others or something of that nature. This, of course, was Lon Chaney. Yeah, Lon Chaney played this mad doctor. Oh, yes, he was the Boris Karloff of his day. Uh, and uh, he, uh, we had this one gag which we actually photographed, not by means of trick photography, where we would suspend this huge mirror over this mountain road at night. And uh, his purpose being to tra entrap the people that would be traveling that road in their automobiles. And as they would drive over this mountain road and come about this curve, they'd suddenly see their, their own headlights in this mirror. And thinking it was a non-coming car, they'd turn their car off of the highway and would go down to this canyon. And then Cheney would retrieve their still quivering carcasses from the <laughs> from the destroyed automobile and rush them to his operating tables and his laboratories to transmute their souls to other creatures. Then shortly after this in 1925 and 6 I believe you made uh, you worked on two films with Mary Pickford uh, Little Annie Rooney and Sparrows. Yes, the uh, I had a it was a very fortunate engagement for me Charles Rocher who I have a great respect for as a photographer, uh, was photographing Miss Pickford, and I was given the opportunity of uh, working with Charlie on a couple of Mary's pictures. Uh, the way that we worked uh, on, on the Pickford pictures was the, uh, that there were really two units. Charlie would photograph one unit, and I would photograph the other, whoever the cameraman happened to be that was fortunate enough to be working with him at the time. And it was a kind of a of a split credit, although of course Charlie was the man who was in charge of the photography. So I did. I came with Charlie, and we did together. Uh, that is, I did under Charlie's tutelage a thing called Little Annie Rooney, directed by William Bodine. We have that at the house too. Oh, good. And uh, then we followed that with uh, a picture that I think was a very pleasant experience. Uh, a picture called Sparrows in which Mary played this poor little creature who I think was in some way associated with this farmer that had this baby farm. And uh, I remember there were some hazardous moments where Mary was saving the children and they climbed over a pool full of alligators, which gave me a chance to do some more trick photography on the order of the thing that I did with the mirror for DuPont, uh, some fine line double exposure work in which as they crawled across this log that was teetering and tottering over these snapping alligators below them that gave many a gasp to the audience. And in the middle of Sparrows, Charlie left for another engagement. I believe he went to England to do a picture. And that left uh, myself and Carl Struess, who came onto the picture to finish Sparrows. Mm -hmm. And that was my only association with Mary. I had the very good uh, pleasure of being invited by Miss Pickford to uh, Pickfair to her home here a few months ago. She had a sort of a reunion party for our old uh, publicity director, Mark Larkin, who had been our publicity director in those days. And uh, Mary invited many of us who had been associated with her at that time to her home for this party. And it was a very, very wonderful reunion. Then after this, there came what I suppose we could almost call the Dolores Costello period at Warner's. And among the films that you made with her was one called Old San Francisco. That's right. And uh, you still, since this was a silent film, didn't have a chance to use a sound effect that uh, you'd recalled from your youth. 
Yes, that's an interesting point, I think, at least it is to me. Uh, I had experienced the earthquake and fire in San Francisco, as I mentioned earlier. And this old San Francisco was a picture directed by Alan Crossland with Warner Oland in it and uh, several other people. And the, the story played around, the crux of it was, had to do with the earthquake and fire. And there was an incident that, not, not an incident, but a, but a, a sort of a, an effect that was created during the earthquake and made a very indelible impression on my mind at the time that I was hoping that Alan would incorporate in the making of this old San Francisco picture. And subsequently, Alan didn't use the idea. Subsequently, uh, when Metro did the San Francisco fire thing, or I forget what they call it, uh, I talked to them out there about the sound effect that I thought would be a tremendous effect for them, that I was a part of the same thing that I speak of as having made an indelible impression on my mind at the time of the fire. And that was our home, was on Vanis Avenue near Vallejo Street, and uh, we didn't, our place didn't burn down until about the third day. It was dynamited and then destroyed by fire, of course. But Vanis Avenue was the main route of exodus for the refugees and trying to escape the wrecked city and the flames that were devouring the city on the way to the Presidio and to, to Fort Mason and towards the bay. These thousands upon thousands of people kept pouring past our home in their efforts to escape the fire. And the only means of transportation they had was themselves. And I remember as a child hearing for day and night incessantly, for 24 hours a day, the scraping, tinny, rasping sound of metal bottom trunks being dragged over the sidewalks and wash tubs filled with their belongings being dragged over the sidewalks. And I thought that that sound as an underscore would have made a pretty tremendous effect in the sound picture, and at least in the visual picture, which I did with Crossland, which had no sound effects, of course, we could have, I thought, made a, a, a sort of a montage thing of this thing, which would have told visually the same effect that they could have told in the sound in the subsequent production. Yeah. The Dolores Costello era was a very wonderful era to me. Uh, it started with Warner Brothers. I went to Warner Brothers to uh, when I were still on Sunset Boulevard in that little studio before the days of Vitaphone. And uh, to photograph a picture for a newly imported director that Warners had brought over uh, right after World War I, a man by the name of Michael Curtiz. And with the usual tactful approach that our producers make on many things, they gave this completely un-American, the Hungarian director, I, I, un-American, I don't mean anti-American, don't misunderstand me, but a man who was not American and who had only the ideas of the foreign techniques in, uh, techniques in mind, they gave him the typical American story called the Third Degree, which was the story of the, uh, of the uh, police procedures and, and performing third degree uh, horrors on their prisoners trying to extract confessions from them and Mike directed this thing. He did make a pretty good picture out of it but it was a yeoman's job as far as I was concerned because it was full of all sorts of trick photography which again we had to do in the camera. We had no recourse to optical printing or anything of that nature. Yeah. And that was the beginning of the so-called Costello era with me. Bun Haskins had been photographing Delores up to this time. Mm -hmm. 
And then from that point on, I photographed everything Delores was in, up to and including the Noah's Ark thing, which yeah. time I left. Mm -hmm. Let's go back a little bit, though, and you mentioned uh, Vitaphone, which brings us to the jazz singer in 19... Uh, the copyright date seems to have been... Uh, 1927, 26. isn't it? 26. I don't remember the exact year, but that was the the so-called first talking picture. It was the first picture that the public... 27, yes. was the first motion picture in which a silent actor suddenly burst forth into speech on the screen, and that happened, of course, the first showing was, was in the Winter Garden in New York. Mm -hmm. But I had the good fortune of being permitted to photograph the very first talking picture to, to hit public uh, recognition, and that was the jazz singer with Jolson. That's, a, that's an interesting story because George Jessel was originally supposed to play that, and uh, Warners, I think, were pretty embarrassed financially at the time. There was some difficulty about money, and I, knew, I do know that some of the employees were taking this, uh, part of their salary, at least during that period, in, in shares of stock and they did all right by the stock subsequently, incidentally. But uh, Jolson was revealed upon to make a test. Jolson had had, had a very un unhappy uh, experience sometime prior to this and being photographed for motion pictures. Something happened. I don't know what it was, but he didn't seem to think that he came through, and he was reluctant to take over the jazz singer thing, the jazz singer part that Jessel had backed down out of for some unknown reason. I don't know why Jessel had backed out of it. Because it was actually Jessel's part. Jessel had created the part, I think, in the in the theater. Yeah. And uh, they prevailed, the Warner Brothers prevailed on Jolson to make this test. Uh, and I was to photograph the test, and I remember the great anxiety on the part of Jack Warner and the powers who be at that time at the studio that Jolson be handled with kid gloves and properly photographed so they could prevail upon him to play this part in the thing. So Alan, who directed the tests, Alan Crossland and myself, who photographed them, uh, extended ourselves and apparently made a very satisfactory test for Jolie with the result that he did the picture, and that was the turning point for Warner Brothers and their prosperity with, with the uh, advent of Vitaphone. Vitaphone, I always felt, was the uh, direct result of the the beliefs of Sam Warner, one of the brothers who has been dead now these many years, but I think Sam was the boy who actually did the job of introducing Vitaphone to, to the industry. There were some interesting problems with the microphone placement in the jazz singer. Yes, that's that's very true, because uh, being a new experience, the marriage of sound to motion pictures, it meant the bringing in of a lot of people who were strange to motion picture production and who were also strange to us because of their requirements for, for sound. I remember the, a lot of the sound engineers and experts from the American Telephone and Telegraph Company became the sound people. And they felt that this new wonderful thing that was happening to pictures should be entirely within their control, and justifiably so, but nevertheless their demands for perfection on their end of it were to were such that, that if we were to uh, give way to everything they asked for, our picture results would suffer to a great extent. Of 
of course, for the first few pictures we did uh, bow entirely to their wishes to this, to this extent that they felt that the microphone, and possibly, as I say, justifiably so, the microphone had to be in proximity to the person who was speaking uh, to a degree that it would be impossible to photograph the person without getting the microphone in the shot. Mm -hmm. In other words, they wanted the microphone within inches of their mouth, which meant that it had to be lowered, if it came down over the top of the picture, it had to be lowered to a point where it was intruding into the top of their heads, which meant that we had to frame our picture below the point of the microphone, so we were very often cutting the actors just above the eyebrows. <laughs> or if it was a longer shot that required some space, we would have to conceal the microphone behind a vase or a... Or a set of books on a table or a desk or behind a telephone or whatever object could be placed in proximity to the person to allow the microphone to be within a few inches of their mouths. And in the case of longer shots, we would very often introduce a piece of plate glass in front of the camera. And on this plate glass, after the sound man would put the microphone exactly where he wanted it and provided it would clear the top of the actor's head, We'd paint on this plate glass a painting or a medallion or some fixture of some kind that would become a part of the wall of the set and would in effect conceal the microphone from the camera but would appear to be a portion of the set itself. Of course, after a few pictures with these techniques and we found that the that uh, we were not no longer making entertainment but were making phonograph records, we. Uh, did lay down the law to the soundmen and told them that we felt that we had to make pictures and that they could get the sound the best way they could, and they succeeded because of their versatility. They got even better sound when they found that they could keep the microphones out of the pictures. While we're, we're discussing films that were made during this Warner Brothers period, um, would you like to say something about Noah's Ark? Hell, we have a print of that at Eastman House. Well, I feel that Noah's Ark, although it was a rather catastrophic picture for Warner Brothers at the time that it was made because of the excessive costs that were involved, the tremendity of the production, and the rather unsuccessful first release that it had, although I do understand that this recent pre-release, or rather re-release, that has been taking place has been very lucrative to them. But Noah's Ark was, I guess, the most stupendous attempt at a spectacle that was ever put on the motion picture screen. I, I don't believe that anything up to that time had been made that in any way could match the mobs of people and the tremendity of the sets and the, the uh, terrific effects that were involved, the catastrophic effects that took place. And it was a very well-prepared story on the format of the intolerance thing, the modern story running parallel to the biblical story, and also very much like that other Bible thing that I edited in my early days that I believe I made no mention of. The That's the Mina film. The Mina films yes. thing. It was also on that same format of the parallel stories. But uh, Noah's Ark, insofar as Eastman is concerned, I think also is a milestone because... I believe that if I am not mistaken that the uh, making of Noah's Ark was the introduction and advent of your type A panchromatic film insofar as motion picture application was concerned because uh, we were using prior to this using uh, orthochromatic film and in the case of the talking pictures we had to use panchromatic film because we couldn't use the arc lights on the set with sound because the arc lights would make a hissing, humming noise that would interfere with the sound.
So we had to use incandescent light, and of course the old film was not sensitive to the incandescent mm -hmm. light, so we therefore used the panchromatic film, which in all honesty, you must admit in those days was a pretty bad film. It was very insensitive. I mean, I won't say a bad film, I retract that, but it was a film that was insufficient to meet our requirements. And uh, this Noah's Ark posed a problem as to the tremendity of the sets where there was just not enough light available to light the sets of this size. And uh, it required some adjustment in the, in the film emulsions that we were using. We wanted to use uh, panchromatic film, obviously, because there was some sound to be introduced into the picture not in the line of dialogue, but also we felt that we could do better justice with incandescent light to the size of the sets than we could with the arcs. So as an outgrowth of this, and there are demands, my demands, and the demands made through Warner Brothers to Eastman, they did develop and bring forth the Type A panchromatic film, which was, I believe, Noah's Ark was the first picture on which it was used. I wish you'd speak a little, Hal, about working with uh, Erich von Stroheim and the Wedding March, which was finally released in 1928. Well, that was a quite an experience because Stroheim, uh, who I think was a great man and did some wonderful things for the motion picture industry, made some magnificent films, and he's possibly a very much maligned man. Uh, maybe justifiably in some cases and maybe not so in others, uh, had started this wedding march as an independent production for Paramount with Pat Powers, who had been formerly with Universal, one of the owners in Universal. But Pat was financing this production, or arranging the financing, and Eric had started the thing and was spending money with a lavish, extravagant hand, as he usually did on most of his pictures. And being a rather difficult man, having some of the techniques of the old, old ideas of autocracy in so far as direction is concerned, he had difficulty with many of his cast, and, and particularly with the two cameramen who had started the picture. They had been on it several weeks when they finally struck an impasse with, with Vaughn. I mean, they couldn't, temperaments clashed, and I was called in to take the picture over, and I did take it over. And uh, I worked on it for 14 weeks with Von Stroheim, and we, I think, got some of the most spectacular photography I've ever been able to achieve during that time, and we got along beautifully, worked hand and glove, and almost like brothers under the skin for these 14 weeks, and then unexpectedly one of these things happened with Vaughn that seemed to always be destined to happen with any association that he had. And there was a clash of temperaments, which meant my leaving the picture, and then Roy Klafke came on and finished the picture. He spent about eight weeks finishing it. But the funny part of it was that that picture, as it was released, was only half of the picture. Uh, it was supposed to be released at that time, as we made it, it was to be made as the wedding march. And it had the, uh, wedding, mar the wedding march and the honeymoon were involved. And then it was supposed to be later released in two in two pieces, one as the wedding march and one as the honeymoon. And as I recall it, the two of them were combined into one and cutting it pretty badly, the picture pretty badly suffered in cutting. And many of our spectacular effects that 
required a great deal of time to tell photographically were cut out. I recall specifically one thing, when, when the girl goes to the cathedral, uh, played by Faye Ray, the girl played by Faye Ray, goes to the church to confession, has something to do with, with her affairs with, with uh, Stroheim that didn't culminate in marriage. He married, I think, Zezu Pitts, as I recall in the story. Zezu was the royal lady with all the money. But this, uh, this confessional thing that Faye Ray did in, the, in this cathedral set, this church set, which was supposed to be St. Stephen's in, in Vienna, uh, Vaughn, who was a devout Catholic, wanted it done with complete authenticity and we had priests as technical directors on the set and so on and we did a a routine a photographic routine it, it was not a montage but it was a series of dissolves so it was very carefully charted out before we started photographing uh, it started with with phase entering this cathedral and it took two full reels 2,000 feet of film to tell this one confessional incident and I've often wished that that incident could have been released as a picture within itself because it was one of the most beautiful things I have ever seen and one of the most beautifully told things I have ever seen on the screen and it was, it was cut out of the picture entirely because of the fact that it was so darn long when it comes to the final editing mm -hmm. but as I recall we only had 400 foot rolls of film in those days and in order to carry this feeling of, a, of a continuous action without a cut in it, we would always manage to time the scene so that at the end uh, we'd come on to an inanimate subject like a statue of the Virgin or, or, or a piece of the altar or something of that nature or a crucifix, at which point I could leave the camera set rigid, change the film and pick up again and just have a negative cut without a jump in it, you see, on an inanimate object. So if the two reels for the, for the 20 minutes that this thing ran there was not a cut in the whole thing. It was just one continuous, lovely, dissolving series of things, one on top of the other, that actually told the story of this confession on the part of the girl. Now, when you went to Universal, right? Yeah. Now, you worked with uh, two European directors, Paul Laney and Paul Fayot. That's right. I did a uh, thing with Paul Laney called The Cat Creeps, I think. The Last Warning came The Last Warning yeah. came first, and then The Cat Creeps. And uh, Paul was a very wonderful man. He was a, he was a typical, jovial, uh, overfed, paunchy German type who had uh, many of the ideas of German technique of direction, but he was a very wonderful man to work with, and I think we got a rather exciting picture out of, out of our uh, last warning. It was made with Connie Veit. Conrad Veit was the star. Mary Philbin was in it. Leslie Fenton was in it. And uh, we had some very exciting moments in that thing. I remember there was one shot in particular. Uh, the picture played mostly in this theater. It was Conrad Veidt was a magician, and Leslie Fenton and uh, Mary Philbin were his helpers on the stage. And there was the frustration romance on Connie's part, who was the hideous magician and who was very much in love with his beautiful young assistant, and his young assistant was very much in love with her, with his other assistant, played by Leslie Fenton. And uh, finally it reached a point in Connie's life, in this magician's life, where he felt that he had to kill the boy, which he did during the sword trick in the trunk. He runs the sword through the boy rather than to miss him. 
And the big kick of the scene was that when he opened this trunk on the stage, here was the body of the assistant inside it with a sword sticking through him. And in order to give the impact to the audience, we didn't have zoom lenses in those days. And Lenny had the thought of this, as he reached down to open the trunk, we'd be on this tremendous long shot of the theater with the whole audience below us and the full proscenium and everything. And as he opened the trunk and everybody gasped with horror at this terrible sight inside the trunk, the camera would zoom into a close-up of the body in the trunk. Well, that was obviously impossible to do because there were no booms of that size available. And had they been, we couldn't have rolled in over the audience with them. So we conceived the idea of, of slinging this sort of a bosun's chair thing from the roof of the stage in which the Phantom of the Opera set had been built. That was the set that we were using for this theater. That was a very high stage, and we suspended these four cables up onto the roof and stretched them down to their lowest point, which was just ahead of the orchestra pit, about where the orchestra would be would be, would be the longest point of swing for these cables, and set this plank seat arrangement onto those cables with the idea that in dropping from the roof of the theater, from the back of the theater, as this cables would be turned loose, this chair would swing down over the orchestra pit and by sitting on this chair and holding a hand camera, we would get a zoom effect as we swung down into a close-up of this trunk with the body in it. Well, it was very carefully planned, and I volunteered to make the shot myself. I didn't want to subject my operator to anything that looked as risky as that, although I felt it was completely safe. But unfortunately, the triggering device that we had attached, the special effects people had attached to the bottom of the chair, that was fastened to this rope contrivance, it was to let me down from the roof to a certain degree, then this trigger was to be cut loose and allow me to swing free over the stage while photographing this thing. The triggering device stuck and flipped the chair over with me in on it, in the chair, and I was hanging by my knees. Oh, I was also tied into the chair. But had I not pulled my head up sideways, I'd have left what intelligence I did have in my brain is less spattered on the footlights of that stage. <laughs> it was really a pretty close call, although it, uh, I think that the audience was possibly panicked more than I was because I remember them trying to jump up to catch me to stop me, and if they had, they'd have killed themselves with the impact would have broken their necks, as well as mine, of course. But strangely enough, after all that, the shot didn't work out. It was not on the picture. Oh. It was no good because we flipped over and it didn't work. I tried it a second time, but the still picture indicates I did manage to swing free, but it didn't have the effect that we wanted. We did it much better by a direct cut to a close-up. Mm -hmm. Would you comment on those stills in there from Broadway, too? Yeah, Broadway's another interesting first, I think. I mean, the, of course, the original play of Broadway, the, the whole concept of the play was that it was in a... They, they're working this dancer and the... Uh, and his girlfriend are working in this little honky-tonk off-Broadway dive of a nightclub, but that wasn't quite lavish enough. It's like the producer that wanted to do The Last Supper, but instead of having 12 people, he wanted 112, so it would be a spectacle. <laughs> but they figured that Broadway, because of the great amount of money that the play had cost them and the build-up it had had, should be a lavish production, so we put this little honky-tonk cafe into something that would have possibly held Grand Central Station within its 
environment. But I, I, the only reason I say this is not to ridicule the, the thinking of the people that made it, but to, to point out a fact that, again, I was faced with a photographic problem because here was a set that was, we had to build a special stage for, a stage 12 out at Universal Studios, because none of the stages were high enough or big enough to hold the set, and when we built the set, we also had built this huge crane, which is known as the Broadway Crane, that was designed by Dr. Paul Feosh, who directed the picture, and I helped him to some extent on the design of it. But the crane was so tremendous and so heavy, we had to have a concrete floor on the stage. Well, now having this crane that would do 360-degree swings in all directions and having a set that was built entirely enclosed posed a problem in lighting that uh, was pretty difficult to meet. And uh, again, it was the old idea of not having film fast enough to cope with the amount of light that we could get in on the set. So. We made we made the top, the ceiling of the set was composed entirely of panels of silk, different colored silks, and uh, all of the picture was black and white. Uh, and behind the silk, we put globes, incandescent globes, hanging behind the silk. That, although they appeared to, when they were photographed through the silk, they appeared star-like. Nevertheless, they were a sort of a source of general light onto the uh, for the set and the columns and uh, different, every, every place we could introduce any lights within the set that could be photographed, that was at the same time shed a certain amount of light on the set, we did so. But even so, there was not enough sensitivity and, and uh, enough light to, to give exposure in the, in the sensitivity of the films it was at that time. So Rochester was very cooperative to this extent that they agreed to hypersensitize the type A film for us, the panchromatic film, and uh, by their hypersensitizing methods of those days, I understood the film would be quite perishable unless it was used almost immediately. Mm -hmm. So they arranged to air express to me, under refrigeration, uh, every day a certain amount of negative that had been hypersensitized so that I could photograph the set, and it worked out very well. The set was very successfully photographed. And I think that was another milestone in, in photography insofar as handling different sets are concerned. Some of these stills show the ceiling, and of course within the ceiling there is an area where some lights could be introduced that yes. could be photographed. Isn't there a monster, as you described it, that is shown in one of those stills? Which one is that? The Didn't you say that they had to... Uh, uh, Revise the uh, Studio Four construction. Oh yes, they did. They the this, this crane, this boom. I forget how many tons that are. Thing weighs. I think they still have it out there and are using it for some purposes other than photography. Now I think they use it to rig sets with or raise lights up into the grids. <laughs> but the thing weighs so many tons that they had to rebuild and revise all their stages. All the wooden floors came out and concrete floors went in to accommodate the weight of this boom. Yeah. It was quite a device. <laughs> 